Hey, what's up, everybody? This is Ray, and welcome to the RayWentworth.com podcast. In this podcast, we'll keep you up to date with the latest app development tech talk. Now, here are your hosts, Drew and Janie. Thanks, Ray. Welcome back to the Ray Wenderlich Podcast. This is Season 7, Episode 2. I'm Drew Freeman, here with my co-host, Janie Clayton. Today, we'll be talking with Ben DeFrancesco about Chris Latner's Concurrency Manifesto. Later, Janie will give us a look into the new ARKit framework. Hi, Ben. Hey, how you doing, Drew? Hi, Janie. How are you? Hey. So, first of all, I have to say, now... So you're based out of Philadelphia, and you run a small software consultancy. It's called Scopelift, right? Yep, that's right. Uh, I am in Philadelphia. I know you're on the other side of the state, Drew, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, the other state of Pennsylvania. <laughs> the other state, that's right. Um, but uh, yep, so Scopelift is my company. Focus on iOS development. Been doing it for, uh, or, you know, been uh, running the company for a few years now. And um, yeah. We are completely happy to plug our panelists. You can always find links on our show notes. So so let's talk about not merely cons- uh, concurrency, but the Chris Latner Concurrency Manifesto, which is a great mouthful. And let's back up and just talk about concurrency and Swift 4. Um, I- I'll start out just by telling you, I didn't even notice the fact that there was no native concurrency for Swift. I just naturally rolled in all of the stuff from Foundation and uh, GCD. I didn't even think about it. Get me uh, oriented there first. Yeah, so... Um as you mentioned, Swift, uh, Chris Latner recently released a uh, what he's calling kind of a manifesto or kind of a, uh, an, a beginning of the conversation around what a native concurrency model is going to look like in Swift. Um, so Swift is obviously now uh, several years old, um, but it does not have a native concurrency model. What it does, though, have is, uh, at least on Apple's platforms, is access to uh, GCD or Grand Central Dispatch and also NS Operation Queue and some of the other uh, classes in Foundation that are built up around on top of that. Um, So those are C and Objective-C libraries, of course, but they bridge very cleanly into Swift. And so you're still able to write concurrent code using kind of a lot of the same um, idioms and kind of uh, approaches that we're used to uh, from from the Objective-C world. So obviously the first question is, why do we need it then? If if the tools are there, and I guess that's the, the question that we have, I guess, GCD and the like on the Apple OSs, but Swift trying to be multi-platform, is that where we have our shortcomings? Yeah, I, I think that's part of it. Um, so part of it is having something that's baked into the language that uh, doesn't require you to be on Apple's platforms. Um, there is an effort, and I think it's done pretty well to, to as far as I'm aware, although um, I, I admit to not being too familiar with it, but the, there is an effort to uh, re-implement libdispatch on um, Linux and to make it available there. Um, so I think cross-platform, though, is part of the reason why you'd want a native concurrency model. Um, I think even more so is just that I think Swift wants to be a language that is going to be around for the next 20, 30 years. Yeah, so we've learned a lot as kind of the programming community at large about um, about concurrency, about how adding it to code bases, um, you know, creates challenges and what those difficulties are. And so I think what, what Chris is getting at is that um, we have an opportunity here with Swift to add something new that is going to be better and easier to work with for us as developers. So um, I've been doing iOS programming since about 2013, so about a year before Swift was introduced. And I talked to a couple of the kind of like old graybeard Objective-C programmers who were talking about how a lot of the multi-threading and concurrency stuff that we work with in iOS has been abstracted away by the programmers because when iOS got to be a really big thing, like originally before, they kind of assumed that if you were programming Objective-C that you understood concurrency and they gave you control of the threads and allowed you to go in and do it 
it yourself. But then when a lot more people got into the iOS development community, not everybody had that base of knowledge. And so that was abstracted away in things like GCD and so forth. So like, are they, with the Swift manifesto, are they still kind of abstracting everything away from the programmers? Or is this something where they're giving control back to us to be able to control our own threads? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, you know, I think what what you're kind of getting at with kind of uh, what some of those conversations were is that there's there's different levels of abstraction. And so it's actually good to take a little bit of a step back and talk about like what concurrency really means and um, how we've kind of uh, dealt with it in the past um, in Objective-C and even in other languages and um, and how what Chris is proposing for Swift um, might be a little bit different. So, you know, uh, fundamentally what concurrency is really all about is being able to run more than one process at the same time on the computer, right? So it's kind of funny to think about, but like uh, a long time ago, uh, or, you know, even today on very simple, small, like microcontrollers, you literally only had one thing executing on the computer at any given moment, right? Um, so there's only one program running and you could think of your code as being at one line of your code is being executed one line at a time, right? And we kind of think about our code that way as programmers, but we also know, of course, that our computers today are running lots of programs, lots of processes, lots of threads, even within our own program, each at their own kind of point in execution. And the operating system is kind of juggling those and running each of them on real hardware as it's appropriate. Right. And that's what a thread is. And so the kind of lowest level uh, abstraction that you can deal with when you're dealing with concurrency is to work directly with operating system threads to create them, to uh, provide locks around things that are shared, uh, shared resources. Um, So um, those APIs are available to us in Objective-C and even in Swift, I guess Um, they do bridge in. So you can work with those APIs, but uh, we have levels of abstraction above those. So like my understanding was one of the gains that you got from Swift was instead of having to put locks around shared resources, you just made them constant so that everybody could access them, but nobody could actually like you know go in and change any of them. And that was something that was supposed to make Swift a little bit more thread safe because you could um, you the default was that all of your variables were going to be constant and they couldn't be changed. Yeah. So so one of the big issues with concurrent programming and specifically the way that it's done um, in uh, you know in traditional systems like with threads and locks or even with things like GCD is that shared shared mutable state becomes really difficult, right, to deal with. So if you have multiple processes running at the same time, multiple threads, and you have some mutable resource, and each of them is poking that mutable resource, making changes to it at the same time, you can get some really uh, wild and indeterminate behavior, some really crazy bugs, right? And so that's where things like locks and synchronization comes in. And so you're right, Janie, that with Swift, we have a couple of things that help with that. One, we have value types that are kind of copy on write. Um, And then the other thing that we have is is uh, let statements, so things that are um, uh, immutable. And so taking those as defaults does help with concurrency because if something is immutable, well, then that problem of shared mutable state is is kind of resolved. But ultimately, that only gets you so far because a program does need some kind of mutable state. There's something that has to change, right? So we can make certain things constant, um, but some things are still going to need to change. And when you get to those things, you're right back at square one. So um, that's, that's valuable, but it's not sufficient to kind of solve. Uh, solve these issues. As you know, I spent the last 
year or so working on a book on metal. And one of the big things with GPU programming was that it gave you parallelism. And I know that parallelism and concurrency are very similar, but they're not necessarily the same. Like, can you kind of articulate the difference between parallelism and concurrency? Yeah, that's a really great point. So uh, parallelism is slightly is kind of um, you could consider parallelism like a subset of concurrency. So concurrency is just when you have multiple processes that are each executing um, kind of independently of each other. And if you're on a single core machine, um, only one of those is ever going to actually be running at a given moment. And the operating system, the scheduler, this low level thing at the operating system is going to switch those processes on and off the actual physical hardware. And uh, it's going to do that, you know, very rapidly and according to its own set of rules that you don't really control as the programmer. Um, But then once you get to systems that have more than one core or more than one CPU, you can actually run multiple threads simultaneously in parallel. So that's what we call parallelism when um, code is actually executing at the same moment. Um, So, you know, this is actually a big reason why concurrency is becoming more and more important um, because multi-core is really, it's not just the future anymore. It's really here. I mean, even our, even our Apple watches have multiple cores. Our iPhones now are going to have six cores. Um, Our desktops have like 36 cores, right? Um, So uh, if you want to take advantage of that, you have to be doing parallel programming. You have to be taking advantage of concurrency. Well, maybe your desktop has 36 cores. I I can't afford the 36 core (laughs) machine. Okay. So like we were talking about having multiple cores on an iPhone and so forth. So like when I go and I I pause a program in Xcode, there's like, I don't know, like 32 threads or whatever. I, I was talking to uh, Manuel Chakravarty a little bit about um, concurrency and I've been reading a little bit about it because like again as somebody who started with Objective-C this was all kind of abstracted away and it's kind of still something I'm not necessarily understanding but I understand that with that you're not necessarily limited by cores that when you get into like 32 and 64-bit architecture that you can use those in order to create multiple parallel paths so even if you have a dual core iPhone that you can have more than two um processes happening in parallel. Do you know anything about like how that's determined? Because that's something that I've been reading about. I don't quite grok at the moment. Yeah, well, you can have um, any number of threads on the system, right? So you can have way more threads than you have uh, physical CPU cores to actually run on. Um, It's just that what the CPU cores limit how many of those can actually execute um, in real time at any given moment. And that's where that scheduler comes into play, where say you have um, two cores in your system, but you have a dozen threads, it's going to decide when and how to run those on the actual physical course. So you're limited by cores, by the by the amount of processes that can be done in parallel. So if you have a dual core processor, even if you have 12 threads, only two things can be done simultaneously. Yeah, that's exactly right. Although I'll say there's one kind of exception, which is that we have this thing now called hyper-threading with Intel CPUs. And that's where they kind of duplicate some of the hardware of the CPU, specifically like the memory registers. And then they do these really crazy, like low level, uh, like software and hardware tricks where they actually fit instructions like in between other instructions on clock cycles. So with a hyper-threaded CPU, you can actually run two threads in parallel on a single core, which is kind of counterintuitive, but it is possible. So a dual-core hyper-threaded CPU can run four things in parallel. Um, but ultimately, your your original point stands, which is that you're limited by the number of cores to how many things can run in parallel. At this point, then, what we're looking at is uh, Swift is a, a growing, very 
very popular language, but at this point, as far as Apple development goes, and I say Apple development because we can do them, we can use a foundation for Mac OS, iOS, watchOS, etc. We're missing the multi-platform. We've got limited support in Swift because what we're doing dealing with right now is sort of constants are available, but there's a lot of things like mutable values, dealing with race conditions, with concurrency, uh, locks, etc. And of course, on top of that is making this in a native Swift-like language way so that it simplifies that process. And I'm guessing that's what leads us up to where Chris Latner said, I've got an idea and I think this is what should be going on. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I drew. So there's kind of two things broadly that Chris Latner is proposing or um, starting the conversation on in this manifesto, right? Because it's not an official proposal. Um, And the first one is something called async and wait. Um, And the second one is something called the actor model or the actor pattern, right? And um, we could talk about each of those, but the first one is interesting, um, async await, because that's something that we could actually see land as early as Swift 5. So it's it's more feasible that we could see it sooner rather than later. Whereas the things that he talks about in the second half of his manifesto, like the actor model um, and some of the things around that are probably going to take literally years to play out. So um, it wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if it was Swift 6 or 7 or even 8 until some of these other things came to the language and were fully implemented. I, I, I looked at both of these things and I, I agree that from what I saw in the actor model that, that that seems foundational in changing the entire way you think about threading the objects, everything, any kind of communication. But this async await, it really has this this do catch kind of feel to it. Yep. If you could touch on some of that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So async await is really interesting because the way that they've thought about it, the way that Chris and some of the people he worked with in writing up this manifesto have thought about it, it feels very, very swifty. And it's actually pretty clever the way that they've done done it. So you can think of async await as being very um, analogous to, uh, to throws and try, right? So the, it's, it's good to kind of step back though and, and talk about the problem that async await is trying to solve. So for many of us as iOS developers, um, the only time we may really touch concurrent programming is when we're doing some kind of asynchronous call. Uh, very often that's like a network call or some kind of file IO or some long running process that we're gonna kick off like applying some you know f- filter to a photo or something. And then we get a callback from those functions when that is completed um, that kind of returns the value to us asynchronously, right? So callbacks are what we're used to working with um, in in Swift and in Objective-C in order to uh, handle things that are going to run asynchronously. and that works to an extent. I mean, we, you can get a lot done with callbacks, but there are some kind of known uh, issues and, and challenges that arise from it. Um, so one of them is this, you mentioned it, Drew, is the idea of these uh, uh, nested uh, pyramids of doom. And that occurs specifically when you have um, multiple callbacks that need to be nested within each other, right? Because you need some some resource, some data that's returned by the first callback needs to be provided in the next call, which has to go to the next call. And so you're having to go like three or four levels deep in your callbacks. And at each callback, you're having to do error checking. And it's a big, a big pain in the butt. It's an asynchronous dumb tree. It's just turtles all the way down. Yeah, turtles all the way down <laughs> until you hit the bottom and pop your way back up again. Yeah, And it can be really painful to uh, to deal with when you have multiple levels of that. And, and again, with the error handling and, and it's it just becomes very challenging. So um, what a, the other thing that is kind of uh, challenging about it is that the compiler doesn't know anything about 
that, right? It doesn't know that your code is running asynchronously. Um, it can't enforce that you're going to do error handling properly, that you're going to remember to call the completion block, any of those kinds of things. So the compiler is just like, okay, go do whatever you want, which is very unswifty. Um, Swift tries very uh, hard to have the compiler help us and help us to make uh, the right implementation, right? So um, going back to what I said before, what async await does is very similar to what throws and try did for error handling, right? So instead of doing kind of this ad hoc error handling that we used to do in Objective-C, where we would like pass in the address to an error, and then we would check the pointer on the way back to see if it was nil or not. Um, what, what try and throws did for us is it gave us a structure in Swift where we can annotate a function and we can tell the compiler, this function may throw, may cause an error. And then on the consumer side, as the person who's calling a function that throws, the compiler is going to enforce that you handle that, specifically that you use try or try bang or try question mark if you want to turn it into an optional, right? But you have to do something as the developer to acknowledge that this function may throw an error and then deal with it, right? Um, and so async await does basically the same thing, but for asynchronous functions. It basically lets you annotate a function and say, this function may return asynchronously. It may block the current thread of execution. And so then the compiler knows that on the consumer side, the person calling that function needs to annotate it with something called await. Right? And so await basically says, well, this line of code may take a while to return. And if it does, we can go off and do other things. And then we'll return at this point of execution and continue once that's uh, come back. So what that gets you as the programmer is that what used to be like a nested uh, bunch of callbacks just turns into linear code that's annotated with this await and looks just like um, the code you would write if everything was returning immediately and not asynchronous. So it makes your code a lot cleaner and a lot easier to reason about. So the other thing that's nice about that is that uh, it also lets the compiler, again, reason about these things, right? So now the compiler knows that your function uh, might return asynchronously. It's gonna enforce that um, on the consumer side. And it's also, you know, it gives the compiler the opportunity to do optimizations and uh, other, thing, other things around that. Um, so, you can really think of async await as almost just like syntactic sugar around completion handlers. Um, under the hood, you might still be implementing your, your asynchronous callbacks with Grand Central Dispatch, or internally you may even have a completion block, um, but you're basically just putting um, it's it's level language level syntactic sugar around completion blocks to make them much easier to work with. So so this is a good first step in clarifying code for uh, concurrency. But it looks like at this point that in itself isn't going to handle things like race conditions or any of the other problems that can occur from doing asynchronous work. Yeah, I mean that's roughly right. I mean it, it does help a little bit in that your code is cleaner, right? And your compiler knows a little bit about uh, things that are asynchronous versus not asynchronous. And um, so it is likely going to result in fewer bugs and fewer conditions like that. Um, but it certainly doesn't um, guarantee that they'll be removed or get you out of having to think about those things completely as a developer. And that kind of leads into one of the questions that I had was that I'm personally very interested in very low-level type stuff. I want to learn assembly and I'd like to figure out how to design my own CPUs. But I know most people don't really care about that. So like I was kind of interested in knowing how much like most general developers need to know about parallelism and concurrency in order to be able to take advantage of this. So like is it like it is now where it's basically like here just throw it in this async block and 
and it'll work and you don't have to worry about what's actually going on and you can focus on you know downloading the next latest cocoa pods yeah i mean i think that swift has this really uh laudable design goal which is kind of like progress progressive disclosure of complexity um so and i think this fits well into that right so if you're just doing um, a couple of network requests and you just want to get that data back and manipulate it um well then by all means um you should be able to pull in some library that's going to be implemented using async await and annotate your functions with await and grab your data back and off you go creating um, your app. Um, but if you want to get down into the weeds, I think Swift gives you a lot of opportunity to go to go deeper and to kind of uh, get more complicated with that. And I think this fits well in with that. And Janie, I'm kind of like you, actually. I kind of uh, uh, I have like a very impractical love for low-level computing. Um, I would love to to learn more assembly and to you know I've you know even explore like CPU architectures. I think that stuff's really fascinating. But um, it also doesn't really pay the bills that well these days, at least. So uh, and paying the bills is overrated. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Oh, look at me. The last deep level, low level coding I did was when I taught myself 6502 on an Apple II. I mean, this is back when we didn't even have a mult command. And did you have to walk 10 miles uphill in the snow to with your, your stack of uh, punch cards? Stack of punch cards, uphills both ways. At this point, uh, Chris has actually put in an actual proposal for uh, an implementation of async await, right? Yeah, so that's turned into a real proposal, and uh, he had even opened up. He, he's even opened up a PR with kind of a, a, a preliminary implementation of what that might look like in the language. So, um, I think it has a good chance of, of landing in Swift five. I think uh, it's really not about whether or not the work can get done. It's more about whether or not it fits in with the rest of the goals um, for Swift five, and whether the team will prioritize it. Um, but um, I think at the very latest, we'll see it in Swift 6, and I think it's going to be a, a nice addition to the language. By, by Swift 5 and Swift 6, are you saying a complete architecture of concurrency, or are you just saying the await if they figure that will fit in? Yeah. Yeah, again, you, you mentioned that the await, yeah, I, I know I keep calling it await, you keep calling it await, I, I don't... <laughs> Well, he, he said that the, the actor model would be more like Swift 8 or 9. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to say. So, yeah, I was talking just about async await or await. I don't think it matters. But, uh, yeah, that's that's more likely to land in Swift 5 or maybe Swift 6. When it comes to the, the second part of um, Chris's manifesto, and maybe that's a good transition, I do think it's it's probably a lot later. And, and Chris kind of says as much because it is a big change um, both to the language and also kind of in the mental model that we'll have to use as developers when thinking about concurrency. The, the actor stuff. I would love to touch on, but we could do an entire podcast on just that one. Well, we do have Ben back for another episode and a couple of. of mm. Yeah, we do have you. We do have you coming back, so we could do another one uh, on on that. Yeah, sure, that would be super interesting. I mean, I would uh, encourage people to just go take a look at the uh, the manifesto that Chris has written. It's actually surprisingly um, approachable, and the stuff on the actor model is uh, is is really interesting. Um, it's a pattern that I've uh, gotten to to learn a little bit over the last. Um, year, year and a half, I've been learning a language called Elixir, which is built on top of another language called Erlang, which is a language that kind of pioneered uh, the actor model. And so um, I like it a lot. I was I was really, really uh, thrilled to see that uh, Chris was proposing uh, bringing this into Swift. The manifesto and a lot of the information, and I believe the link to the PR are in the show notes. And concurrency, it's, it's obviously a whole, whole area. And it also explains why a language that is as robust as Swift hasn't quite 
wrapped around that just yet. There, there are some, some major big ticket items right now in Swift that are still in the pipeline. I mean, having a having stable ABI, having concurrency. These are things you don't realize, and it's still surprising how strong Swift is as a language without these fundamental things that will make the language just that much more powerful. Ben, I really want to thank you for, for all of this information on concurrency. And, and like I said, we, we will definitely be talking about this more later in the season. Again, Ben's contact information will be in the show notes. And if you have any questions for Ben or any more questions on concurrency, we're going to touch on it. You can always obviously post questions into the forums on raywendrick.com under the podcast. And maybe we'll hit some of those questions when we come back around with this one later in the season. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys for letting me uh, come on and uh, and chat about it. So we're recording this show uh, just about a week after Apple's fall 2017 announcements which means that we've seen the new phones and we've seen an expansion on an already new framework. And Janie, you're going to help us find our way through the new AR kit framework. Yeah. So one of the new Chinese frameworks that came out of WWDC 2017 was AR kit. So like I talked to a lot of people who are interested in games and graphics and a lot of people were incredibly interested and excited about the possibility of doing virtual reality, but I thought that augmented reality was actually a better fit for the iPhone. So for anybody living under a rock, which, you know, that's totally okay. Um, augmented reality is being able to use your phone to look at places in the real world using a camera, but it shows things that aren't necessarily there. So you can use your phone and you can, it'll show you uh, Pikachu from Pokemon. Go, and you'll see things through your screen that aren't necessarily there. So for me, like I thought that augmented reality worked really well with the iPhone because the iPhone is Apple's flagship product, and a lot of and a lot of the stuff that we do with virtual reality requires special hardware. So you need special, like you know, full headsets that are a single use thing. And for me, like, I thought, like, Apple, it didn't really make a lot of sense for Apple to pursue virtual reality because that didn't really fit in with their hardware model, which is more important than their software model. So ARKit, uh, first off, for augmented reality, um, there need to be three different things that occur in order to be able to allow augmented reality to happen. You need to be able to have tracking, registration, and visualization. So tracking is being able to keep track of where you are in space, where what objects exist in your scene, and that's used that uses like machine vision and access to the sensors that are on the phone. The other one um, that ARKit gives you is registration. So when you go and you create um, what's called an AR anchor by um, either creating it in code or allowing your user to go in and interact with the application and like tap the screen and be able to create anchors in space, it registers all of the different points of interest that the program or the user or whatever want the program to keep track of. And then the last one is visualization. And visualization is the one thing that um, ARKit doesn't give you. So um, like the AR, if you look at the ARKit um, framework reference, it's really very simple. There are only a couple of objects. There isn't a lot to it, but it really takes care of a lot of really heavy lifting stuff. And it takes care of the registration and the visualiz- and the tracking, but it doesn't take care of the visualization. I'll, I'll 
But uh, so for the visualization, you need to use something like Scene Kit or Sprite Kit, or um, you hook it up to the Unreal Engine. So like that's where a lot of the real power of AR Kit comes in of being able to utilize one of these visualization rendering frameworks for the visualization for AR Kit. So you mentioned at one point Pokemon Go and how it can render a Pikachu on the screen. Now that existed before AR Kit. So what is it that AR Kit has added? to make, I guess, what they did in Pokemon Go easier for a programmer. Okay, so I mentioned that you need to have tracking and registration. So if you look in ARKit, um, what ARKit does is it wraps a lot of really um, difficult and abstract uh, hardware frameworks for you so that you don't have to understand their inner workings in order to be able to implement them. So like one example is in ARKit, you have an AR camera and you can use the camera to capture the current frame. And I I don't know if you've ever worked with AV Foundation, but trying to capture the current frame in AV Foundation is a pain in the butt. Going in and trying to do anything where you have to deal with the camera, especially with live video, using AV Foundation is lots of lines of code. Um, it's a lot of classes that all kind of sound the same. There's a lot of really hard work that goes into being able to go into AV Foundation and take advantage of AV Foundation and what ARKit does is it wraps all of that stuff that you used to have to know how to do into one class and one method call so to in order to capture the frame. So it makes something that is very common with augmented reality like super easy for somebody who doesn't have to know anything about what's going on under the hood with AV Foundation. So once again, it seems that we've got that tiered concept that you can still go down to the AV Foundation level if you need some very particulars, but you've now got an abstraction a little higher with a with ARKit to do a lot of the, the busy work now in a much simpler method. Oh, before ARKit, there were a lot of different frameworks available for doing augmented reality. It was possible if you wanted to, to go in and actually implement all of um, ARKit on your own before ARKit even came out. It just required you to have some understanding of how to be able to go in and capture live video and how to access all of the gyroscopic sensors inside of the iPhone and also how to do machine vision algorithms to analyze a scene looking for points of interest of being able to get it to orient to what's actually going on in the real world. World. So, Jenny, I um, I have to admit, I have been fascinated by ARKit since it was released at WWDC. I've been watching a lot of, you know, these uh, videos that people are putting together of kind of the prototypes and the samples that they're putting together. But I haven't had a second of my own time to actually dive into it at all. So one thing that I've kind of noticed from looking at some of the demos is it seems that one of the big things that ARKit kind of gives you is like plane detection, like being able to like render a scene like on a table or on the ground or on a wall or something like that. Um, so, and, and that, that in and of itself seems really powerful and fascinating. I'm just wondering, is there anything, are there any other kind of like features or surfaces that ARKit kind of makes it easy for you to, um, to explore in, th in the 3D space or is it pretty much focused on, on finding uh, planes? Um, right now it's pretty much focused on finding planes. That's a fairly easy thing to do with machine vision algorithms is doing like edge detection. So you can go in and you can um, analyze a, a frame of video and figure out where edges are and figure out from where all of the edges are in a, a scene what is if what is a plane and what isn't and one of the, the kind of limitations right now is that because it's utilizing these machine vision algorithms those don't work very well if you move your phone around a lot or if there is really low light and so like there there are some limitations but like right now um the 
kind of the low-hanging fruit is being able to detect planes. And it's entirely possible that in future iterations of ARKit, or if you were so inclined, you could teach the, the application to be able to recognize different things. So like if you had a neural network that was able to recognize signs or stop signs or whatever, you might be able to put that into the renderer for ARKit and be able to get it to recognize specific things. But as of right now, that's not built into the framework. But again, it just was introduced this year. And so like o- over the next couple of years, hopefully it'll get to be more powerful. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And one thing in, in watching the announcement for uh, the new iPhones and some of the other hardware this uh, this past week, I noticed that they discussed um, they, they discussed like uh, they had that demo of like the snap the new Snapchat like filters and doing cool stuff on people's faces. And I think if I'm remembering correctly that they talked about that as somehow being related to ARKit. Is there something with like face detection and stuff that's involved in ARKit, or was that kind of more like marketing speak from from them on stage? So my understanding from watching the videos is that there is a sensor in the iPhone 10 or X or whatever it is that you want to call it that allows you to go in and completely map your face. So what that's doing is it's running a machine vision algorithm while you go over your face and it calculates a lot of different points of interest. And like um, if, if you watched any of the videos that they released after the announcement, especially the one on ARKit, it talked about a mu- multitude of points of interest on the face that you could control and track like you know like left eyebrow and um, different parts of the mouth and various points in the face so like I went to school for video editing and audio engineering and I took an animation, a 3D animation class and being able to rig a 3D model of a face and have it actually like, you know, respond to all of the different muscles in the face and get it to look realistic. That was the hardest thing like ever. Hmm. So for me, being able to see that there was a way for you to be able to go in and map your face and have it actually like track all of the different movements that you were having in a realistic way, like that really excited me because I was really hoping, and I don't know if you can do this or not, but I would love to be able to map a model of my face and be able to do like like voice acting stuff for um, for animation and be able to export all of that information into an animation tool like maybe Scene Kid or even like Unreal and be able to actually act out all of the different scenes that I'm interested in doing for my various animation projects. So that was really exciting to me because it takes away a lot of work that you used to have to do and what they were showing was just incredibly hard to do by hand by a skilled animator. It seems like a step toward mocap in as much as you can actually just pick up your reactions and put it into that 3D model. If you wanted to do, for example, an anthropomorphic fox, you could create basically a video of yourself acting through this character. It seems like almost a step into animation where you don't need the full mocap suit, mocap face, and that the the camera and the AR can basically just take that apart. For, for people that aren't in the in the business, uh, mocap is motion capture. So um, if you go and you're watching, you know, like Gollum from Lord of the Rings and some of the behind the scenes features, you see that his his face will be covered with lots of little dots. And so back ten years ago, when they first started doing motion capture for um, like movies like that, that that was a way of being able to um, capture an actor's performance. Was you had a lot of different points of interest that were on the face, and you needed to be able to go in and identify them and they use dots. So I believe that machine vision has gotten to the point where it is able to recognize those features in a face without having to 
go in and add all of those different dots to the face. Because if it knows that it's looking at a face, then it can go in and identify where the eyes and the nose and the lips and the ears are. I think they said that the cameras are actually, the the infrared cameras are actually shooting a series of dots across the face to help with that. So you're effectively getting that same sense of dots on the face to locate the muscles, to locate the shape of the pieces of the face. And it then just does all the analysis through the vision. Yeah, that's fascinating. And that makes sense, actually, now that you mention it. Um, um, that it's tied to the hardware of the iPhone 10 because what I was wondering why was with all these demos and stuff that I've been seeing with AR kit why we weren't seeing some more of uh, these interesting uh, face applications but um, that must be something that's that's relatively new or just just released and is tied to to the hardware of this new device yeah I mean they specifically unveiled that as a feature of just the iPhone 10 and not the iPhone 8 or the 8 plus and so like I know that they were kind of using it to sell the idea of the the animoji where you could have the, you know, the the Craig Frederiki chicken or whatever, but I think that there's a lot more to that technology that's far more promising than the you know the animoji that they showed on this on during the talk. Yeah, it is kind of pretty amazing, right? That like uh, the amount of technology that they're managing to fit in a phone. Uh, I mean, you know, this is like you were saying things that would require 10, 15 years ago, whole motion capture rigs and an enormous amount of development. And now the hardware is right there in the phone. And we have these really powerful, uh, these really powerful frameworks that kind of abstract over these problems for us and allow us to, uh, to build cool things as developers. So like, I don't know if this is necessarily hyperbole or not, but a lot of people on Twitter were like, oh, we're at the point where like the iPhone 10 is a more powerful processor than my, my MacBook does. So like we're getting to the point where um, the iPhone is basically, it's like, having a laptop in your pocket and just it has we're carrying supercomputers around with us and they can do incredible amazing things and we're using them to do stupid crap like making ourselves look like chickens <laughs> and like I, back, back like in, in the 90s there was this commercial where this guy was like yep I got a 3.2 quad gigahertz processor and a 20 inch screen and blah 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 and the person's like well what do you do with that I use it to play solitaire sometimes I play golf <laughs> and it's just like there's so much potential in all of the hardware and the power of everything that we're carrying around in our pocket. And I feel like we haven't even scratched the surface of what it's capable of doing. And I'm really excited to see somebody tap into that and really come out with something that's like amazing and powerful instead of, you know, just making a bunch of like Twitter clients. Janie, going back to AR kit, can you work with that framework in the simulator or do you actually need the device to do that, to use those frameworks? You need to build on device because it utilizes the camera and the camera doesn't exist in the simulator. Okay, so basically, while we can do a lot of the AR kit that exists that was introduced at WWDC, if you're interested in doing any of the facial animations that was introduced at the September event, you're going to have to wait until you can get your hands on an X. More and more specific hardware and sensors and other things that are being added to the iPhones that you can't really simulate in the simulator. Again, you have like the camera, you have all of the various sensors that are in there. Um, I haven't looked into seeing about the infrared thing, but I'm assuming that my laptop doesn't have the the infrared camera sensor to go and map my face. So just we're we're getting to a point where we're really um, reaching the limitations of what you can do on the simulator and what what you must do on device. 
It will be interesting to see exactly what hardware they bring into the new Uber iMac that's coming out toward the end of the year. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm really fascinated to see, you know, like I've said, I, I haven't had a chance to play with ARKit, um, but I've been looking at these demos and stuff. But I, I'm really interested to see, like, once we kind of get past this initial infatuation and all these kind of, like, interesting, like, I did it just because I could demonstrations, like, what kind of practical use cases for AR and ARKit uh, kind of uh, we, we see um, in, in the longer term. Well, one of the things that I'm particularly interested in with ARKit is this idea of being able to put together um, educational experiences for people that exist in specific places. So, like, I would love to be able to have an augmented reality application that I could take to the Tower of London, where I could go and I could have my phone. And or the Smithsonian. With the Smithsonian, you'd just be stuck with the Night at Museum, where you'd see all of the different things moving around. I'm talking about, like, if you went to a zoo or you went to a museum or, like, a historical place. Like, I would like to be able to figure out if there's a way to be able to import um, geographical location data of some kind so that if you go into, like, yeah, like the Tower of London, like, it knows you're in the Tower of London. It looks for very specific landmarks that it knows are there, and it goes and it renders different experiences for people. So you can have 10 people who all come into the Tower of London, and they all see the same thing. So you could put together educational experiences for um, kids coming in and, you know, visiting these historical places. Like one of the big things that I just wanted to make sure I got across to people is that um, especially so I've gone and I've learned metal and I tried to learn OpenGL and there's kind of this idea that if you go in and learn an Apple framework that you know everything that you need in order to get something to work properly. And so like ARKit is not a very large framework, but and you can go and you can learn everything in a couple of hours, but that doesn't mean that you're going to be able to go out and do something that's really like amazing because the big splashy showy stuff that you see with that is the visualization framework. So understanding scene kit, understanding sprites kit, understanding how to go into to the Unreal Engine and create a portal or be able to, you know, like look inside a police box and see the TARDIS. These are things that require a lot more dedication and skill and knowledge of things outside of ARKit. So I just, I don't want people to go in and think, oh, I'm learning ARKit and I'm going to make, you know, the next Pokemon Go because there's so many art assets and other animations necessary to get that beyond just the tracking and the registration. Yeah. So I'm glad you said that, Janie, because that's actually something that I wanted to ask you. So I have no experience experience with all that stuff that you just mentioned, like any kind of the, the visualization and the rendering and the games engines and stuff like that. Right. Um, but what, so, so it's just not something that I've, that I've done. Um, but when I see ARKit, I do kind of get excited and I have some ideas about things that I might want to create. Right. Um, so if uh, knowing that I need that portion, that that portion is not provided by, by ARKit, what would kind of be the best way for me or someone in, in my position as a developer to, to get started and, and start building something that could do those visualizations? The, the first thing I would recommend anybody wants to do ARKit by uh, 3D Games by Tutorials by Chris Language off of RayWonderlick.com. Mm. Um, I went through when I did my um, augmented reality kit workshop at uh, Abers with Wales. I basically adapted the first project to um, show people how to do um, ARKit. Um, you get a lot of really good built-in um, assets and primitives and effects in scene kit and I feel like that book does a really awesome job of showing you what you get like for free with scene kit it makes scene kit very approachable and it makes you go like wow this is amazing like I went and I, I would write it after I read my after I wrote the metal book I'm like damn I should have just read this instead of learning metal because this does all the stuff that I wanted it to do and I just felt like I'd wait like so if, if, you're, if you're interested in doing AR kit I highly recommend learning scene kit and again uh, 3D games by tutorials by Chris Language is a really awesome 
book for that. And I'm not just recommending it because it's a Ray Wenderlich book. I honestly think it's the best um, resource out there for Scene Kit because for some reason, like, it doesn't have the same excitement that all of the other Apple frameworks does. And I don't really understand why because it's just an astonishing framework. Janie, that's a lot to look forward to. And I, I can't wait to see what people are going to do with it. I, I, I'm personally really just blown away by the the mock aha take on me video <laughs> that I, I, I saw. It just, it, it made me sit they're going god somebody actually did it <laughs> that's gonna wrap things up for this episode of the ray wenderlich podcast again i want to thank our guest today ben we've got all of ben DeFrancesco's contacts in the show notes and he will be joining us again later in the season for janie clayton myself drew freeman we will talk to you again in two weeks from this date and in the meantime it's back to the wizard at the emerald castle ray back to you and that's a wrap Thanks again, everybody, for listening to the RayWenderlich.com podcast. We hope you enjoyed it, and don't forget to leave a rating on iTunes. See you next time.